Hello, friends. Glad we can again come together as we journey through the book of John. I'm Colin. All throughout the Bible, we read the stories of men and women who oppose the things of God. Their opposition would take on various forms, many times with extreme violence. As we look at the latter part of John chapter 11, we read the story of the high priest Caiaphas. In a shocking statement, he calls for the death of Jesus. For him, it was an act of self-preservation. He said Jesus' death would spare the Jews from the wrath of the Romans. But as Pastor Brian Burson tells us, God in His sovereignty will at times use those who actively oppose Him to accomplish His purposes. Despite his evil intention, Caiaphas is a prime example of a man who unwittingly declares the gospel. So for those of you that maybe are not with us on a regular basis, we are taking a journey through the Gospel of John. And so this is where we are in our journey as we pick up here in the 11th chapter this morning. And as we go through John's Gospel, we're looking at it through the lens of the purpose statement that John himself declared. He said, at, at, almost at the very end of the gospel, he said, these things I have written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so that's how we're, we're understanding the gospel as we go through it, that this is, this is John's purpose. He wants the reader to understand that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Savior. He's the, he's the one and only person that God sent into the world for the specific purpose of saving us. So as we pick up here in the story, these verses that we just read, they remind us they remind us that even the most powerful people are powerless to stop the ultimate purpose of God. Not only are they unable to stop God's purpose, they are oftentimes unwitting players in the great redemptive drama that God is working out in history. And I'm referring here to this man, Caiaphas. Caiaphas, who, intending to thwart the purposes of God, he is actually furthering them, but he has no idea that that is what he's doing. So we're going to come back, and most of our attention is going to be given today to, uh, to what, what Caiaphas says. Uh, but, but first, let's look at a couple of the details that John gives us here. And for those of you that have been with us, you, you know this. All of these things are happening after the raising of Lazarus from the dead. So that's the context. Jesus has raised this, this young man, Lazarus, from the dead. He had died and been in the tomb four days. He was a close friend of Jesus and uh, his family members, his sisters, they were, they were greatly disappointed. They were perplexed. They didn't understand why Jesus hadn't come. They sent a message 
to Jesus telling him that the one he loved, Lazarus, was sick. It was a serious illness. And they expected Jesus to come immediately and to heal him because Jesus healed people. That's one of the things he did. But Jesus delayed his coming. And during that time, Lazarus died and then was put in the tomb and was there for four days in the grave. And Jesus comes and to everyone's surprise, Jesus does the unthinkable. He calls Lazarus forth out of the grave. And so as we pick up in verse 45, we read, Therefore many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. And that would stand to reason, right? I mean, if, if you were in that crowd and you understood that this man had, had died and had been buried and was in the tomb four days, and this man, Jesus, comes, says, roll away the stone, and then calls to this man, Lazarus, to come forth, and Lazarus comes out of the grave, you would think that everybody would believe. You would think that everybody would, would say, well, of course this is the Messiah. And many did, but not everybody did, because we read in verse 46, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So what John is implying here is that these, although they saw the same thing, they didn't believe. And they went to the Pharisees who are the ones who are the antagonists. They are against Jesus. And they went to, um, to conspire really with them against Jesus. Now, how many of you have ever thought this before? How many of you have thought, if, if we could just see some miracles today, if, you know, why doesn't God just do a miracle so people will believe? Maybe you have family members, maybe you have friends, maybe you have people that are close to you, you care about them. God's changed your life, he's touched your life. You long for them to come to know Jesus as well and they're not responding, and you think, God, if you would just do a miracle. Well, what this story tells us, and what many stories in the Bible tell us, is that miracles don't necessarily change people. Some people responded. They believed. Now, I, I would think that, that a miracle would change everyone. I would think that people would see that and say, okay, th this guy has to be the Messiah. He has to be the Son of God. But, but that's not the case. So we just need to, to remember that. God knows what he's doing. God knows how to reach people. We might think it should be a certain way, but God knows what people will respond to. And they will not always positively spawn, respond to miracles, even though we would think that they should. Now, there's, uh, there's people that are mentioned here, groups of people. There's Pharisees, and then there's the, um, the high priest, which belong to uh, a group called the Sadducees, and then there's a mention of the Sanhedrin. So let me just quickly explain who these, who these groups of people are. So the Sadducees, or the, uh, uh, the chief priest, 
the chief priest, they, they would be, um, now you have to understand, in Israel, uh, politics and religion go hand in hand together. So they are both the religious leaders and the political leaders of the nation. So the, the chief priests belong to the, the sect of the Sadducees, and they would be the equivalent of the, uh, the more, more the left-leaning people politically and, and religiously. So there were certain parts of the Bible they didn't believe. They didn't believe in uh, the supernatural. They didn't believe in all of their scriptures as being inspired by God. They only, they only believed in a small portion. They politically were pretty much in league with the Romans. And they were in league with the Romans because the Romans gave them power. Now, the Pharisees are kind of the opposite. They're, they're more on the right wing side of things. They're the theological conservatives and they're the nationalists. They're the ones who, they want the Romans out at all costs. The Romans are the biggest problem. And so you can imagine these two groups didn't even really like each other. Their, their whole uh, perspective on things was, was pretty much the opposite from one another. They didn't like each other, but they came together because they didn't like Jesus even more than they didn't like each other. And then we have a reference to the Sanhedrin. So the Sanhedrin is, it's the, it's the ruling body of the nation. So the nation was under Roman dominion, but the Jewish people were directly accountable to their own rulers. And the Sanhedrin is a group of 70 men, like a Senate, that ruled the nation um, politically and also religiously. So these are the players here. And the thing that we see about them, the thing we see that is their greatest concern, their greatest concern is not as it should have been to recognize, identify the Messiah. You see, all of the Jewish people, they're living with this idea that God's going to send a, a deliverer. God's going to send a savior. And the, the Sadducees aren't totally interested in that because they're just fine. They're in a good relationship with the Romans. They're in power. And so the Messiah would even sort of rock the boat. They're not interested in that. Well, the Pharisees, they really wanted the Messiah to come because they hated the Romans and they wanted to get rid of the Romans. And they knew when the Messiah came, he would be on their side and he would elevate them to power. So bottom line is what they are primarily concerned about is power. They're not concerned about truth. They're not concerned about what uh, is, is actually the case with the person of Jesus. They're really concerned about maintaining their power. And we see that as we read on here. Um, what are we accomplishing? They ask. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go like this, everyone will believe in him. Everyone will believe in him. And then here's the big 
concern. Then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Their biggest concern was losing power. They did not want to lose power. So, this should just tell you that politicians never change. And politics never changes. In the end, it, it is about power. You know, there used to be a time in the history of, of this nation where a politician was known and even identified as a public servant. So you're in a position not to get something out of it for yourself, you're in a position to do something for other people. But even though it might start that way idealistically, it doesn't stay that way very long. And as time goes on and as politics develop, you get to certain points in time like was the case then, like is really the case for us today, where it, bottom line is it's about getting into power and staying in power. So that's their, their biggest fear. Their biggest fear is losing power. Now Caiaphas, he is one of the most powerful of all of them. And so he speaks up. And notice he says, you know nothing. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. So, so Caiaphas, he completely exposes himself. He's, he's not going to conceal what's really going on in his heart any longer. He's basically just going to come straight out and says, we need to kill this guy. Because if we don't kill him, the Romans are going to take away our position. Now, Caiaphas is the high priest. He's the highest religious figure in the land, and he's also the most powerful politician in the land. And he says, we need to kill Jesus. We need to put him to death. But here's the crazy thing. Caiaphas is actually prophesying, and he doesn't even know it. He doesn't even know it. He is speaking the plan of God, and he doesn't know it. His intention is, is purely selfish and totally evil, but unbeknownst to him, unwittingly, he is the voice of God at this moment. And... One of the things that we need to understand is that God is sovereign. Now, maybe you've heard that term before, talk about the sovereignty of God. When we talk about the sovereignty of God, what, what we're saying simply is that God actually rules over everything. And when it's all said and done, when history is finally come to a conclusion 
and we look back over the long, long season of human history, we're going to realize that God was working out his plan the whole time. And he was even at times using people like Caiaphas to do it. So we have a number of examples of where at times God uses those who not only do not know him, but he will even use those who are actually opposing him to accomplish his purpose. And, and this is just another example of that. But if we go back in the Bible, we find that um, that was the case with the Pharaoh of Egypt. Maybe you remember the story, the, uh, the children of Israel, they were 400 years in slavery in Egypt and God is about to deliver them. So he appears to Moses and he says to Moses, he says, go to Pharaoh and tell him uh, to let my people go. And so Moses does that very thing. He goes and he says, um, the, the God of Israel, he says, let my people go. And Moses, uh, Pharaoh says, I don't know this God, and I'm certainly not going to obey him. He means nothing to me. And the response of God is this to Pharaoh. God says, for this very reason, I raised you up, that I might show my power in you. Pharaoh had no idea that he was the Pharaoh because God appointed him to be the Pharaoh. He thought he was the Pharaoh because he was related to the right family. He thought he was the Pharaoh because he had great wisdom and prowess and strength. But the truth of the matter was, God says, I put you in that position. And as we read through the history that we have, the Old Testament is predominantly a book of history. As we read through the history, we see this repeated over and over again. The Babylonian king, the, great, the greatest uh, king to ever rule, perhaps, the one with the most authority, Nebuchadnezzar was his name. God spoke of Nebuchadnezzar and used these words. He said, my servant, Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was actually doing the work of God, even though he didn't know it, even though he was opposing God. He was rejecting God. The same was said about Cyrus, the Persian king, who would later come and overthrow the Babylonians. And God would speak to Cyrus and say, although you have not known me, I have known you, and I named you before you were ever born. Hundreds of years before Cyrus was ever born, the Lord through the prophet Isaiah spoke about Cyrus, the Persian king who would come. And we have that all the way into the New Testament period. Caesar Augustus. It says regarding Caesar Augustus that in, in his day, a census went forth. A census went forth from Caesar Augustus that all the world, all the Roman world should be taxed. And in that Roman world, Israel was part of that Roman world, and in that Roman world, there were two people. One was named Joseph, the other was named Mary. And in this taxing, what happened is everybody had to go back to their place of birth, and they had to register there. And so Joseph and Mary, who live in the north of Israel, in Galilee, 
they have to make the journey south to go to Bethlehem because that's where they were from and they had to register there. Mary is pregnant. She's very pregnant. She's so pregnant, she's close to delivering the child. And of course, this is not the condition you want to be in and take a trip. But Caesar Augustus, he makes this decree. But you see, here's the thing. God had declared the very place the Messiah would be born, and it was not Galilee or Nazareth. It was Bethlehem. And so Mary has to get to Bethlehem so that the Messiah can be born there. She's not going to just decide to take that trip. So the ruler of the known world, he makes a decree. But in making this decree, he is actually fulfilling the greater purposes of God, even though he does not have the slightest idea that that's what he's doing. And I don't want to belabor this point, but, but I want you to understand and see that what's going on in history is not haphazard or accidental or random. It is God working out his purposes. And God uses people even like this man Caiaphas to declare what he, God, is ultimately going to do. One more, one more story about God uh, using unlikely people. Some of you have heard of C.S. Lewis. We often refer to him, quote him. Uh, he's the author of the Chronicles of Narnia. Um, that's what he's most famous for. C.S. Lewis was a devout atheist, a, a committed atheist, uh, intellectual. He was a professor at Oxford University and just had no time whatsoever for God or, or Christianity or anything like that. He knew a man who was 10 times the atheist he was. He said this guy was... He was the hardest of the hardest. And one day in conversation, this hardened atheist just almost sort of randomly threw out this idea that there was pretty good evidence for the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. He said it one time. He never said it again. He never talked about it again. He never thought about it again. He went on and on and on in his atheism. But that one Thought expressed in the presence of C.S. Lewis planted the seed that would turn him away from atheism and turn him to Christ eventually. And, and what he said, he said, when, when this guy said this, he said, I thought to myself, if the hardest of the hardest is vulnerable, then how can I stand? And again, the point is, this man never became a Christian. He never expressed any interest in Christianity beyond that one sentence. But it was that very thing that God used to turn C.S. Lewis to faith. And then, of course, C.S. Lewis's legacy and the impact that he has had on many uh, for the gospel. So we see that God sovereignly, sovereign means he's, he's the ruler. He's the one who is ultimately in charge of all things. Now, 
here's the question, because John goes on, and this is what he says. In, look at verse 51. He's speaking of Caiaphas, who, who just said, it's better for you that one die for the people than that the whole nation perish. And then John says this. He says, he did not say this on his own. But as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God and bring them together and make them one. So, two things. Caiaphas has no idea what he's doing. He's prophesying. He doesn't know he's prophesying. But he is. John said he's prophesying. He's the high priest. And even though he was an evil man, the high priest was an office that was appointed by God. And because he was in that position, the Spirit of God worked through that. But the second thing that is really amazing is Caiaphas, what he's prophesying, what he's declaring, nobody at the moment understood that that is what the Messiah would do. That was not the thinking in the mind of anybody about the Messiah. Nobody was thinking the Messiah is going to die for the sins of the world. That was not on their uh, radar. That was not their thought. In their mind, the Messiah was going to be the, the great king. He was going to be the one that was going to come and overthrow the Romans. He was going to be the one that was going to elevate the people of Israel and bring them back to that place of glory like they were under their great king David. The Messiah is even referred to as the son of David. So everybody who's thinking that Jesus is the Messiah is thinking that any time now he is going to overthrow Rome and establish the Davidic kingdom. That's what they're thinking. Nobody's thinking he's going to die on a cross, especially on a cross. Not even his closest followers. And when Jesus would say things to them like, the, the son of man, referring to himself, the son of man is going to be betrayed into the hands of evil people. They're going to, to mock him and scourge him and spit upon him and kill him. Jesus would say things like that. And then he would say, and the third day he's going to rise. They would get together with each other afterward and they would look and say, what in the world is he talking about? What does he mean? Rise from the dead. What is that? And of course, they were asking those questions because nobody thought he was ever going to die. On one occasion where Jesus, again, kind of spells out that same, that same scenario, Peter, he says to Jesus, never. Lord, that is never going to happen to you. We're not going to let that happen to you. So my point is, no one's thinking that Jesus is going to die so the nation doesn't perish. And of course, Caiaphas wasn't thinking that at all. But that's exactly what he says. And he said that because that is what the prophets did say. Even though at the time, those prophecies were ignored by the majority of people. Because after all, who's looking for a Messiah that's going to come and then be killed? That's not a good Messiah. So even though those, those statements were there in the biblical text, those were ignored. So 
Caiaphas ends up prophesying what the others had prophesied before him. He prophesied what Isaiah prophesied regarding the suffering servant. In the third, uh, 53rd chapter of Isaiah, some of you have read that chapter, some of you are familiar with it. In that 53rd chapter of Isaiah, remember Isaiah lives 700 years before Jesus is born. And here's part of the prophecy. Speaking of the Messiah, he was wounded or pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our sins. The chastisement that brings us peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. So Isaiah is, is prophesying about this one who is pierced, this one who is wounded, but he's wounded for others that others might be healed. This is really what John the Baptist had proclaimed years earlier. When John the Baptist came onto the scene and he was understanding that he was the one to um, identify the Messiah, he sees Jesus there near the Jordan River in, in the crowd. He sees Jesus as a face in the crowd and he says to his followers, he says, look at that man. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John didn't know what that meant. John didn't even know that Jesus was going to die on a cross. But prophetically, he says, he, the, the, he's the Messiah. He takes away the sin of the world. But this is exactly what Jesus said. Jesus said to Nicodemus, maybe you remember, it's recorded for us in the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3, 16. Jesus said, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not perish. Remember the words of Caiaphas? Better for one man to die than for the whole nation to perish. Here's an interesting little side note. Nicodemus, whom Jesus said this to, is sitting in the room when Caiaphas is speaking. He's part, of the, he's part of the Sanhedrin, as well as another man named Joseph of Arimathea. So two men in that group of 70, we know at least two of them that actually would come to put their faith in Jesus later, recognizing that even though Caiaphas didn't know it, he was prophesying. And then... He was saying what the apostles would go into the world proclaiming that God made Christ who knew no sin to become a sin offering for us that we might become the righteousness that God accepts in him. So Caiaphas unwittingly becomes one of the first gospel preachers. Caiaphas unknowingly is an evangelist. He's proclaiming the gospel, that Christ would die for sin so that others would live. So the very thing that Caiaphas is trying to stop, he's unknowingly helping to fulfill. Amazing. Now, John, in commenting on this in the 51st verse that we already read, in commenting on the words of Caiaphas, did you notice that John expands the scope of the death of Christ to include all people, not just the Jewish nation? 
So among the Jews, the understanding was that the Messiah would come as the, the savior, the deliverer of the Jewish nation. He's the king of Israel. They, they were not thinking in terms of, of him saving the whole world. But John has, of course, come to understand that. He's writing this gospel after all of these things have happened. So John has come to understand that Jesus is the savior of all people, not just the people of Israel. John had written earlier in this gospel concerning Jesus. He said, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. The world in uh, contrast to the nation. The majority of Jews thought in terms of Messiah saving the nation, God's plan was for Jesus to save the world. Jesus is the savior of the world. And only Jesus is the savior of the world. There are no other saviors. Never have been. Never will be. Now, that's hard for people to swallow. A lot of people think that, well, you know, how can you say that? That just sounds so arrogant that you say that your prophet is the only one. What about our prophet? What about our religious tradition? What about what we believe? And you can understand that to some degree. And I think sometimes we, even as Christians, we, we lend to that kind of an attitude because we don't explain Jesus in his historical context. You see, we have to go back to the very beginning of time. Jesus didn't just show up on the scene 2,000 years ago and just out of nowhere come along and say, hey, I'm the savior of the world, you should believe in me. The prophecies about his coming go back to the very dawn of time. And I think sometimes we need to communicate that to people. We need to communicate that, you know, there was a time when there were only two human beings on the earth. There's eight billion now. It's hard to imagine that, isn't it? When you look at just how many people there are in the world. I was in Montreal, Canada yesterday. And it was a beautiful sunny day, and man, the streets were just packed with people. People from everywhere, people from all nations. Muslims and Hindus and Buddhists and atheists, of course, and you know, just everything. Christians, all different kinds of people out there. And we come along and say, Jesus is the only way. He's the only savior of the world. And, and they think, well, wait a minute. What about my tradition? What about, I, I grew up in a place I never even heard of Jesus, and now you're telling me I have to believe in Jesus. But we have to, again, go all the way back to the beginning before there were all of these people, before there were all of these various religious expressions, we go all the way back to the beginning and we find that God says to the first two people that he created in a relationship with him that um, that relationship was broken because of sin, God says that he's going to mend that. He's going to repair that. He's going to fix that. He's going to undo what they have done. And he's going to do it 
by sending a savior. The very first promise of a worldwide savior is in the third chapter of the Bible, Genesis chapter three. And in the first two chapters of the Bible, you know what you have? You have the account of creation. You have the account of creation, how everything came into existence and how human beings were created in the image of God and male and female, he created them. And then the very next chapter, you have what is called the fall where those two human beings are living in a relationship with God. God gives them one, uh, one thing they're not to do. He gives them a thousand things they can do, but one thing they're not to do. And guess what? They do the one thing he tells them not to do. And because they do that, the relationship is severed. But God says, I'm going to fix it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to heal it. I'm going to mend it. I'm going to restore. And there's another person involved in the story. The person is the devil. And it's through the influence of the devil that, that all of this happens. So in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God is actually talking to the devil. And this is what he says. He says, I'm going to put an enemy between you and the woman and between your descendant and her descendant. And he will crush your head, but you will bruise his heel. And so the very first promise was that God would send a savior to destroy the devil and the work of the devil. To crush his head means to give him a mortal blow. But in the process, you will bruise his heel. In the process, the Messiah was wounded. He suffered death himself, but he rose again from the dead. See, this is a story that is, this is history. This goes all the way back. And this truth is, there's a thread that runs from there to this very day. What I'm saying is that as Christians, we need to tell people the full story sometimes. To help them understand why we are saying that Jesus is the only Savior of the world. Jesus is the fulfillment of the ancient promise. And through death, he destroyed the one who had the power of death, that is the devil. And he freed all those who trust in him from the grip of death. And in doing all of that, he did exactly what Caiaphas prophesied. One man died so that the world would not perish. But... John, again, he sees something beyond what they saw at the time. He sees this global thing. And so he says not only that, that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, but that he would also die for the scattered children of God and bring them together and make them one. Now he is gathering his scattered people from every nation, every tribe, every people, every language, and he's making them one. You see, this is what the church is. The church is made up of people from every nation, every background, every culture, every ethnicity. 
that, that's, that's God's desire to bring us all together and to make us one. You know, we, we have sort of the phenomenon today. It's, it's, this is not new, but it's, it's become exaggerated in our day. We have uh, nationalistic churches. We have churches that are more focused on um, nationalism. They're more identified with the, the country than they are with the kingdom of Christ, which is multi-ethnic, multicultural. And whenever you have that kind of emphasis, it's the wrong emphasis. That was the emphasis of, the, of, of these people, of these Jewish leaders, especially the Pharisees. They were, the, they were nationalistic. No Messiah is going to save the world. The Gentiles, forget them. They're, we're not interested in them. The Messiah is for us. And so we need to remember that. God is, he's the savior of all people. Yesterday, we celebrated an anniversary. I mentioned this earlier that we celebrated an anniversary, Cheryl and I, but she didn't know about it. Uh, she didn't remember her. It wasn't our wedding anniversary. She remembers that one. I would be more likely to forget that one than her. But we celebrated an anniversary yesterday. Yesterday was uh, the anniversary. Um, 26 years ago yesterday, uh, our family moved to London to plant a church in that great city. Now, years before we moved there, I had had a dream to have a church that was made up of people from all nations. Now, I don't honestly know why I had that, that dream, that passion. I, evidently, it was just something that God put in my heart. And, and it was partially due from influences, things I, I would read. And I, I used to read, I read the biography of, of one of my favorite um, preachers, a man named Martin Lloyd-Jones, and he pastored a church right in the center of London. And it would, in, in the biography, it would describe how he would preach the gospel every Sunday night, and mostly university students, but, but people would come from all of these different nations. And the room would be packed with people from the African nations and the Asian nations and the European nations. And, and I remember I used to read that and I think, oh, that would just be amazing. Well, the Lord called us and we went there and we got to taste a little bit of that. And at one time we counted that there were 55 different nations represented in our little church there in London. It was amazing. We used to have meals after church every you know once a month or something on a sunday and boy i'll tell you all kinds of fascinating foods <laughs> that's one of the beauties of 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 multi-ethnic experiences right you get to eat all the like these amazing foods that you wouldn't normally get but but anyway this is this is god's this is the church the church is it, every tribe tongue people 
Now, in some communities, obviously, there, um, there, there's not the kind of uh, diversity within the community to be able to have that sort of a thing. But in a place where there is that diversity, the church should look like the culture. If, if there's a church planted in a community that is multi-ethnic and the church is just strictly one ethnicity, that is a problem. God wants us all to be coming together. He's bringing us all together as one from all of the different nations. Now, I still have that dream, and I do see that he's giving us a taste of that here now. So I grew up in this area. I went to, I grew up in just over the bridge in Huntington Beach and went to school there. And, you know, back in the days when I was growing up, this area was just almost completely white middle class. Almost completely. There was one black student in my high school of a couple thousand people. One. And there were maybe 10 Hispanics. Well, things have changed, haven't they? And thank God, things have changed. And now there's all of this diversity. And it just lends itself to a more amazing experience of what God intended when he sent the Holy Spirit out to gather in his people from all around the world. And I thank God that that happened in our area. I thank God for that, that diversity in Orange County. And I believe that there's so many people, the scattered children of God right in our county that have come here from all different places around the world that have come here so they could be exposed to the gospel, so they could hear about the Savior. And so let's never forget that. Jesus died to gather us from every nation and make us one. Let's realize that and live it out to its fullest. So two things I want to close with. Great. I'm glad, you're, I'm glad you're with me, some of you, okay? I know that everybody wanted to clap, but you didn't, weren't quite sure what to do, so it's okay. Okay, here's two things. We're going we're gonna to take communion today. We do that every Sunday. And it's an opportunity for many things, but the, the thing that it's always an opportunity to do is to focus in on the goodness of God, the love of God, because it's through the bread and the cup that we're reminded of the great love of God in that Jesus gave up his body to be broken and his blood to be shed. But as, as, we, as we do that today, this is what I would encourage you to, to think about and thank him for. Let's trust God to deal with the powerful and evil people of this world. Remembering what we just talked about. God is sovereign. 
God is in control. You might look at things and think, I don't, I don't like this. And I can be quite honest with you. I don't like a lot of things I see either. But I also am able to see that even though I see things I don't like, I believe God is at work even through those things. And so I can, I can rest in that. I can have confidence in that. And so trusting God to deal with powerful, evil people of this world and let us spend our time and energies on the mission of drawing in those who are scattered and making them one with us. See, we've got a mission. The church is not to be backpedaling on our heels because, oh no, what's happening out there and what are they going to do to us? If the apostles had had that mindset, the gospel never would have gone beyond Jerusalem. They went out on the offensive, not on the defensive. They went out to confront the kingdom of darkness and to see people delivered from the power of Satan and turn to God. They had the upper hand. They knew they had the upper hand. God was with them. God is with us. So here's what you can do. You can leave the big picture of the world that you can do very little about. And some could do more than others. Maybe all of us can do a little bit. That's good. We should. But the bigger picture, things that you just cannot control at all, guess what? You don't have to control it because God's in control. And you can leave it right there with God. And know that even like a wicked, evil person like Caiaphas, who is the high priest, even he, with a heart full of hatred, who wants to see Jesus dead, he prophesies that Jesus is going to be the one to save the world. So you can just rest in that and focus on what God is doing in the world. God is drawing in today still his scattered children from all over the place to make them one. And as we share in the bread and the cup today, just think about that and just lay your burdens down and rest and trust the Lord and thank him for his faithfulness. And if you've never met Jesus, today is a great opportunity to meet him. And you, and you say, well, how do you do that? Well, Jesus is here. He's, he's alive. He's real. He's present. And you can just simply say to him, Jesus, I, I want you to, to come into my life. You're the savior of the world. I want you to save me. And he will. He will do it. And you will know it. And everybody around you will know it as well. So Lord, we thank you. And as we share together now in the bread and the cup, we pray that your presence would meet us in a powerful way. We pray, Lord, that we would take your word to heart and that more and more we would know that you rule in the kingdoms of men. We thank you that you do. In Jesus' name, amen.